All right, good morning listeners, both old and new, and welcome to this week's edition of News from the Drug War Front. My name is Jeff. my co-presenter is Marion. Good morning. Good morning, Jeffrey, and good morning listeners. Oh, I hope you are tucked up in bed, nice and warm, cosy warm, because it's cold outside. Or if you've had to go to work, that they have heating oh, that yeah. actually does the like job. They've got nice warm insides. Don't go out into the corridor. Don't go out and have a smoke. Just stay inside. And it had, had to be under it freezing last night. Minus so. three this Minus morning. Three. Less, in fact, on the ABC News this morning, they said it was below minus three, which worries me because why didn't they tell us how much below minus three it was? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. Um, as I said, uh, news from the drug war front uh, is brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Home Minimisation and Advocacy. And um, Sadly, the global policies of prohibition remain largely unchanged uh, 60 years after the ratification of the United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs in 1961. So um, that has led to all sorts of human rights abuses and the stigmatising and discrimination of people who use drugs. Um, we'd like to acknowledge the efforts of peers and activists who've contributed to the fight against the war on people who use drugs and reaffirm our commitment to continue fighting against the harms caused by prohibition in all of its manifestations. So with that um, rather hopeful aspirational goal, um, we also hope to aim, well, we also aim to inform and educate listeners uh, about the failure of prohibition and also promote the services of karma. Indeed we do. And uh, Karma, as most of our listeners know, is the uh, provides a wide range of services, such as client advocacy, peer treatment, support, education, information, creative arts, mentoring, and referrals. The Karma office is located in the Churches Centre, at Shop 17, Level 1, 54 Benjamin Way, Belconnen. The office hours are 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday to Friday, and the phone number is 62533643. Karma continues to run its uh, Australian First Opioid Overdose and Recognition and Response with Naloxone Workshop, although at the moment there isn't one scheduled. But if you want to get some naloxone, you can ring Karma on 62533643 and you can get yourself booked in for just a 10-minute intervention where you can get naloxone um, and a 10-minute intervention that will teach you how to use naloxone and when it's appropriate. Naloxone only does one thing, but it does it well. It brings people back from overdose. So we can only exhort you to go get it, uh, get yourself informed on when to use it and how to use it, and keep your supply up. Always carry one in your bag, I do. Um, and so you can give it to somebody else if needed or use it if required. Yeah, look, I carry it as well. I yeah. think anyone who's done the training. I think everybody should have one. It doesn't matter whether you're a drug user or not. You may not even think you know a drug user, but I bet you do. I bet you everybody who's listening to us has a family out there and they know that you're an IDU or they know people who are IDUs they should also be equipped with naloxone because it's just a handy thing to have. And imagine how powerful and, and such great a, you'd feel if you, you do. could Look, save I've someone's used life. I've several times and it really does make you feel like a hero. I'd just like to know that whoever it is that I've given um, naloxone to are alive to fight another day, yeah? And yeah. generally they're people who only accidentally have a nose, but most people don't do it intentionally. Anyway, the point is, Karma can provide you with naloxone. There's a a special program on at the moment through Connection, which is co-located with Karma. Um, If you get in touch with Monica or Eva Lee on 62533643, the next Muragadi workshop for uh, ATSI clients is scheduled for the 29th of July from 11.30am to 2.30pm. And the topic is ice Indeed. this time. Um, so call Monica or Eva Lee on 62533643. They're co-located with uh, Karma, as I said. Um, and, you know, we just, we really want to acknowledge the uh, that this week is... Um, uh, NADOC this week. week is NADOC week, and uh, we don't. <coughs> excuse me. We need to remember that we are on Ngunnawal land, and we just acknowledge that we need to know more about country. We need to respect country, and we revere our elders, past, present, and 
emerging. Oh, well said, As Mary. we do with our IDUs yeah. and our activists. Absolutely. So, in fact, we don't have the right or the the reason to look down on anyone. Everybody to us is a peer. Maybe that's because we're located in society, but there are a range of people who are targeted by this drug war, this horrible drug war. People of uh, Indigenous nature, certainly ATSI people, are targeted um, in for using drugs, but also for any other reason you like to imagine. They are targeted. They are incarcerated at unreasonable numbers. Mm. LGBTQI or pansexual people are also targeted. Um, this is this drug war is really a call to arms of people, chronic pain sufferers, who are also uh, they're just discriminated against because they are chronic pain sufferers. Mm -hmm. And there are such a lot of us out there who need to know that we're here for you and this drug war affects more people than you would think. If you think about people you know with different sexualities, of different ethnicities, um, different visual, you know, visually they're different maybe, younger, older. It doesn't matter if you are not like the officer that you are facing, you're likely to be a target of the drug war. And really, I mean, right now they're investigating wastewater all over Australia to find out who is the capital of what drug. What drug? Yeah, Sydney yeah. is the cocaine capital. Victoria, believe it or not, is the ketamine capital. According to the according media? To yeah. the, according to the wastewater that is excreted. Anyway, yeah. over to you, Geoffrey. Look, you um, it, it, it'd be remiss not to acknowledge that Eve Lee is one of the connection workers um, uh, at Karma. Yep. Um, received the Canberra District Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Community Sector Worker of the Year Award. Oh, did she? Congratulations, Eva Lee. Good for you. Yeah. At the NADOC, uh, ACT NADOC Ball on Saturday. So yeah. um, that's no, great I'm recognition. Great. Pleased to hear it. For yep. the Mirigadi uh, peer education work. That's great. Um, and as Marion mentioned before, the next Mirigadi is, what was it, the 29th? The 29th of, um, of July yep. from 11.30am to 2.30pm. Yeah. So if you contact Deva Lee or Monica on the Karma number, 62533643, you can uh, get come to the workshop. Um, participation. It's relating to uh, ICE this time. Indeed. So congrats. Okay. Uh, the contents of this news from the Drug Warfront broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of the Canberra Alliance for Home Minimisation and Advocacy. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use and does not promote illegal activity. Karma recognises that drug use happens. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. Karma seeks to reduce the harms associated with drug use, as well as the harms associated with the criminalisation of drug use, through the provision of empowering programs that concentrate on community development, person-centred holistic health care and equity of health service delivery for all people. Okay, I think we'll go to a song. This is a, a nice, gentle one to open the day. A um, bit of a classic from the 60s. Sadly, another um, guy died too young in a plane crash. Yep. Uh, in fact, this was his only number one song. And it came, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Posthumously. Beautiful voice. Though. Yeah. Beautiful voice. He was already dead before it got released. Wow. Yeah. Um, sitting on the dock of the bay. Otis Redding. The great Otis Redding and mm, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Oh, he had some voice, Marion. Yeah. Honestly, he was one of the great soul singers of all really time. Was. It was beautiful for us. Um, we didn't mention, Geoffrey, and I probably think we should pop in, say, the Reach, Teach, Treat initiative, the collaborative uh, project between Karma and uh, the Hepatitis ACT. Uh, it's still going and uh, you get paid to clear your Hepatitis C. So... If you call CALM on 62533643 or Hepatitis ACT on 62306344, I'll tell you that again, 62306344, you can get more information on um, Hepatitis C and you can enrol for this program, which is incentivised, which means you get paid virtually every time you talk up, every time you turn up. <clears throat> I just wanted to say, Jeff, to... Um, Trace said that she went uh, to a workshop, I think it was last Wednesday or more recently than that, and she found out that, in fact, um, people with hepatitis C tend to bleed more. 
when they're injecting. And I wondered if people had noticed that themselves. It might be useful. Um, Just listeners might take notice of the fact that uh, how much they are bleeding when they are injecting. Um, And it'd be good to... You know, keep an eye on that. Just go and find out if you're hepatitis C positive and get, you know, even just turn up and have a blood test and you will find out whether you're hep C positive and you'll get paid to have your blood tested. Then, if you are hep C positive, you can get onto the program, have your drugs paid for. It's a really good program. It goes for 12 weeks and every time you turn up, basically you get paid to turn up. And you get supported by peers. And you get supported by peers, yeah. yeah. And... Look, I've heard such great feedback on this whole project uh, that it really is worth speaking about again and again. Yeah. So, I, yeah, get I, in touch with hepatitis ACT or Karma and get yourself enrolled. But just take notice if you seem to be bleeding more than everybody else when you're injecting. Yeah, it might be because you're hep C positive or because you've got hepatitis C. Um, but as you use the DAAs, the direct acting antivirals. I'll just get that right because I've said antiretrovirals apparently and I know antiretrovirals is about HIV. Antivirals, the DAA drugs are. Um, And that will cure your hepatitis C and basically bring your liver back to worthy of being um, donated, which is amazing, I reckon. Just incredible that you can really cure a liver that much. It is such a responsive organ that can be cured and made whole and healthy again just by using these DAA drugs. Anyway. Be nice to your liver. Yeah, look, um, tomorrow, Wednesday, is the day for the blood test at hepatitis ACT. So it is. From 1 till 5. You get $40 whether you're test positive or not. Um, And the guy that takes your blood there is a really hot patootie. Phlebotomist, okay? That's the word that you use for people who take blood. So not only is he sensible about finding veins. He's good at what he uh, does. He's, he's good at doing it. He's also sensible about saying, look, you know where your veins are. You tell me mm. where to go or do it yourself or tell me where I should be looking for a vein that works. But he's a really, really nice guy too. I've heard his name's Chris. Um, and I said this last week and I'll say it again. He's a really nice guy. Um, and you want someone to be nice because the experiences I think that we have all had when we've had blood taken, phlebotomists are not always lovely no, people. some aren't and so hot. And certainly often very disrespectful and very, very critical of our lifestyle. Well, mm. Chris is not. Okay. Well, that's not great critical, Chris. That's awesome. Yeah. Look, um, I just mentioned there's a story in today's Canberra Times um, about but, yeah. a study um, from the Foundation of Alcohol Research and Education, FAIR, who have found that there is quite a low awareness in the ACT of the risk between alcohol and cancer. Well, um, I thought it was interesting because I certainly wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Well, it is a drug, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, alcohol is definitely a drug, one of the most prolific drugs used in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, evidently, only a quarter of 502 respondents uh, knew about any link between alcohol consumption and breast cancer. More than half weren't aware of the link between colon cancer and a regular drink. And about 70% of respondents didn't know there was a link between alcohol and cancers of the head and neck. More than 80% of the people surveyed said they drank alcohol. Yeah. Off the back of the survey, FAIR has launched a new campaign to educate the ACT community about the health impacts of alcohol. Chief Executive of FAIR, Katerina Georgie said alcohol was, quote, a significant contributor to cancer diagnoses, but there was sadly little information available to promote that fact. There are a lot of mixed messages about the health impacts of alcohol, and this means that many of us are totally unaware that alcohol is the cause of a range of cancers. The less you drink, the lower the risk you have of developing cancer in the mouth, throat, breast, liver and the bowel. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And it's uh, called the Reduce Your Risk Campaign. Um, and it comes after new alcohol guidelines were introduced last year, which advise people to drink no more than 10 standard drinks in a week and no more than four standard drinks in a single day. Mm. So good luck on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <coughs> I mean, look, fundamentally, Jeff, I think anybody with any sense would acknowledge that people need to be somewhere other than their norms or someone other than their normal self from time to time. Yeah. Sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis, sometimes on a weekly basis. So intoxication, 
mild or chronic or intense is something that is sought by a good proportion of uh, the community. Um, and But your drug of choice is what seems to be the problem. That's where the trouble lies. We seem tend to be critical of those people, not that we on this show, but we as a society tend to be critical of those people who use illicit drugs. That's mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And those people who use illicit drugs like uh, caffeine, like alcohol, I guess like tobacco or less so now, but and like tea. I mean, they all have drugs in them. A drug basically is a chemical or a compound, a chemical compound that changes the way you think or feel or the way your body behaves. Yeah. Um, and all which drugs means have that side virtually effects. everything, even oxygen, hmm. could be considered a drug under that definition. Uh, we're going to go to a national, well, a story, I guess, from Melbourne. But Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. This is from um, uh, a guy called uh, Greg, uh, Denim? Greg Denham. He's the Australian representative for law enforcement against prohibition. And the article is from the 28th of June, 2021. And the title is, There are three types of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. And then... There's the Herald Sun. Melbourne's Herald Sun has dug itself deeper into the abyss of creative storytelling under the guise of journalism with a fresh front-page banner designed to continue its campaign of fear, hysteria and moral panic over a proposed injecting facility in the city of Melbourne. On first reading, the Herald Sun's headline, quote, Plans for Flinders Street injecting room overwhelmingly rejected by Victorians would suggest that there was no support for an injecting room in the city. In reality, their own polling showed 48% support for a CBD injecting room. The polling also indicated support at 38% for a Flinders Street site. Presumably, data collected via less biased platforms would be even more supportive. Services that seek to reduce harms are most effective when placed near drug harms, including overdose and ambulance call-outs, not where people are being arrested. The Herald Sun argues that the injection room service should be relocated to an area with a high crime rate. Such relocation would likely likely undermine access to the service. There has also been no formal announcement made about the site or service model. Even if the fear campaign was warranted, it isn't. It seems incredibly premature. To add fuel to the flames, the Herald Sun, as it is frequently prone to do, cherry-picks statistics and draws unfounded conclusions. They use crime statistics concerning the CBD to argue drug trafficking and other drug offences were most common in other parts of the city in a desperate ploy to imply that the injection room is more suited elsewhere. What they didn't note is that this drug offence data takes into account all drug activity, not just drugs that are injected. The recurring theme of the anti-injection room advocacy by the Herald Sun is incredibly concerning. This is quite literally the seventh time AOD Media Watch have called this same publication out on it. One, two, three, four, five, six. And there are likely more instances. So that's the first, the second, third, fourth, fifth and the sixth, I'm assuming. Um, and there are more like and likely more instances we haven't been able to. Further analysis on the Herald Sun's frequency of reporting on this issue relative to other topics would be fascinating. It seems like injection rooms are their arch nemesis. Well, they've certainly run a very heavily <coughs> negative campaign, campaign. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, against injection. Well, and they have a good go at the Premier too, don't they? And yet the population very pop he's a very popular leader. Yeah, he's, you know, he's the one guy that actually was there every day until he had a holiday and fell down the fell stairs over. and broke his back. Yeah. But he was there every day that everybody else was locked down, telling them what was happening, what the number of um, COVID infection rate were, and encourage exhorting people to 
you know, stick fast to stick to it together and stay locked down. He knew it was hard, but and he actually is very, you know, very popular because of it, Jeffrey. Well, he stepped up and did his he best did to try and bit, yeah. protect the people and didn't lie. He told people what was happening. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Greg Denham goes on to say, it uh, really feels as if this goes beyond stigma, fear and health concerns for the Herald Sun. Do they own real estate near the proposed injection room site? Are they concerned it will impact on property value? Perhaps they're concerned they themselves will be tempted to use the injection room. That and whole block is is the Flinders Street Station, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. it's a graves lane. It's, yeah. across, it's one of the famous laneways in Melbourne. Absolutely, it's, yeah. You, you wouldn't even know it was there, Marion. To be honest, I, you know, it's hardly high profile. I mean, yeah, it's probably just the only reason you'd know is if it was had uh, murals on it. I imagine it would have because most of the laneways do have murals on them. But it, it wouldn't be lit up with an, a, a sign saying, come and have your yeah, injector drugs here, here yeah. in, in neon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, um, yeah, it says perhaps they're concerned they'll be t- tempted to use the injection room themselves. And this is their strange approach to achieving abstinence. <laughs> That's very yeah. funny, Greg. <laughs> Depressingly, uh, the Herald Sun, he's got the Huns, yeah. uh, relentless campaign against the injection centre likely also stems from a need to satiate a readership so accustomed to a steady diet of fear, porn and finger pointing that now only the most overtly scapegoating stories will sell. It's interesting they call it the Hun, which is an old name for the Germans. Yeah, remember oh, Huns, in World yeah. War II? That's yeah, right. They called World them the Huns. Was it, was, was it World War I they called well, them the Huns? Or, uh, or well, both, I think both wars, maybe. Both, yeah. at least. You know, the Hun was coming, yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, okay, Greg so it goes on to say, in its desperation for an ever-ready wellspring of such stories, the Hun has created its own cinematic universe of moral panic. Oh, he writes well, Greg, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he does. In which the injection room and its boogeyman clients take centre stage, relied upon for storylines of increasing disgust and debauchery, untethered long ago from any engagement with actual <laughs> truth. <laughs> we're sorry to sound like a broken record, but we're very concerned that this problematic reporting could quite literally end people's lives. Yep. The Australian Press Council doesn't care. We aren't seeing any media reporting on the potential benefits of this much-needed injection room, even though those benefits are very clear. Despite the Herald Sun's attempts to paint a picture of total objection by the people of Victoria, the polling is heartening. At least it is clear that there is strong public support for an injecting service. The question remains, however, why aren't media outlets giving experts or public opinion, a platform to express their views on this issue. And that's Greg Denham, Australian representative for LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Yep. That's a good article, Greg. It is. It's a very good article and and absolutely to the point, really sensible. Yeah, straight to the point. It's it's not objective or it doesn't even come close to um, balanced. No, well, we, we've known Geoffrey for years that, you know, the, the, the people who promote uh, the rubbish about on uh, drug law policy and on um, you know anti anti drugs campaigners are generally only talking from a moralistic point mm. of view they're really most of the drugs that they're talking about or particularly the opiates anyway and the cannabinoids um, don't have that much in the way of nasty side effects to um, commend them you know, it's it's the legal drugs that are really far more devastating to the population. But because the government gets such a lot of money in taxation um, by the promotion of those drugs, say, particularly alcohol, then what we know about the dangers of alcohol, apart from alcohol and the use of operation and machinery like driving... We don't know that much, like, as you said, the article about uh, alcohol and cancer. Mm. I mean, I very little about that. It's not largely known publicly. However, the fear, we've got one story further on where a, a police officer says, I smelt cannabis and I feared for my life. And you just think, <laughs> get, over, get out of here. <laughs> really, that, how can the coppers believe that kind of BS? You know, no it's just not right. died from overdose of cannabis in human Certainly history. not from smelling no. it. <laughs> that no. doesn't necessarily... The smell of cannabis does not engender fear in people because you're not going to find people smoking dope and holding guns, yeah? Do you, 
No. Anyway. Keep it in perspective. Yeah. There's another article I wanted to go on to, unless you want to go well, to a we've song. we've got the news at 11. So, okay, um, we've got a minute to go. Do you want to start? Uh, well, 23 seconds probably isn't long probably enough to start anything. Probably not worth going into anything, <laughs> yeah. Long, but um, <laughs> but just saying, look, I really want to say just before we go into the news, this week's probably a call to arms. Uh, there are a range of people that are discriminated against and we want to do some representation of it. It's uh, four minutes after 11. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance Farm Minimisation on, and Advocacy on uh, 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. And just a quick word uh, for people who uh, like uh, our show or any of the other 80-plus um, original shows produced by volunteers each and every week and broadcast on 2XX, Seriously consider um, donating money or time if you have either handy or um, have, are so inclined to try and assist 2XX. Uh, it's an important community asset. Uh, certainly provided a forum during the lockdown part of the pandemic last year for us to stay in touch with our community with important information. Um, and it serves a very important role um, for a lot of voices that otherwise wouldn't be heard on, um, on radio. Uh, okay, look, I'll go to a song. This is a, another old one. This is the British band Slade, and it's Far, Far Away. All right, that was Slade and Far, Far Away. I remember people saying that the lead singer from Slade, Noddy Holder, had a voice that could you know, cut through concrete. Yeah. <laughs> one of those rock voices. <laughs> it that... wasn't uh, smooth like Otis Redding's, really, was uh, it? No, no. <laughs> okay, you're with Jeff and Marion in the 2XX studio, 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. This is just in the drug war front. We've got another story, um, this time focusing on ice consumption reaching a record high in Melbourne. And if you were listening earlier on where I said that, you know, this is um, – we started to uh, talk about uh, – Australia having capitals of drug use and Sydney being the capital of uh, cocaine use and Victoria, believe it or not, is the capital of ketamine and uh, use. Anyway, this is... Uh, yeah, go on, Geoffrey. I just only wanted to interrupt for a second. Just no, it's to... OK. Um, so, evidently, Sydney's now overtaken uh, use of ice in regional Australia. This is by Fergus Hunter, Sydney Morning Herald, June the 30th. Consumption of the drug ice has surged to a record high in Sydney and overtaken use in regional areas for the first time in years. Estimated consumption of crystal methamphetamine, known as ice in its crystallised form, reached about 49 doses for every 1,000 people per day in December in the city, dipping slightly to about 44 doses in February, according to the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission's latest wastewater drug monitoring report. Interesting. How much on wastewater monitoring? Well, quite a lot because this is not the first article we've got on this, Jeff. As you know, we were saying earlier on, there's this one and then there's another one later on about what's going on in Victoria and they're both based on wastewater monitoring. And it's an interesting concept because it really... They fail to take into account how much people actually... People who use ice at what rate they use their eyes, yeah? It's only about how much is in the wastewater and then they make assumptions. It's a pretty broad brush Extrapolating from that, you know, it's a broad brush technique. Uh, It goes on to say the consumption in Sydney was a substantial increase from earlier in 2020 when it fell to around 25 doses for every 1,000 people a day through the early stages of the pandemic and came as use in regional New South Wales dropped off significantly. Regional consumption fell to 30 doses per 1,000 people a day in December, which is more than half the 62 uh, doses measured uh, in April 2020 and 66 doses a year before that. Sydney's use of ice um, uh, is the highest of any capital city in Australia. (laughs) So Sydney's, like I said, now... The article's interesting. Sydney's use of methylamphetamine, often referred to as methylamphetamine. (laughs) I don't think they... Well written. No. Okay, uh, the metropolitan regional turnaround in the use of ice also played out nationally in the Commission sampling period with average per capita consumption capital cities topping regional use for the first time since 2017. The Commission pointed to a gradual recovery in the national market for ice since August 2020. And there's a quote, Methylamphetamine was significantly affected by the events in 2020. In general, a steep decrease of consumption was observed in many jurisdictions immediately after the introduction of COVID-19 restrictions, which has been followed by a slow recovery to levels just below those in December 2019, the report found. As found in the wastewater, we must remember. The Commission's Wastewater Monitoring Report, released on Wednesday and carried out in cooperation with the University of Queensland and University of South Australia, 
analysed the wastewater of 57 treatment plants across the country, including 11 in New South Wales. The December analysis covered 56% of the population, or about 13.1 million people, and provides data on 12 substances, both legal and illicit. The February analysis only included capital cities. The program measured consumption of ketamine for the first time in response to its growing popularity as an illicit drug on top of its legal use for legitimate medical purposes. Quote, early indications from the program are that ketamine use is low and relatively consistent across the country. But there is a much wider spread of use over the collection week than might be expected if the substance is purely being used for medical applications, the Commission found. The Commission's Chief Executive, Michael Phelan, said data on drug consumption at a population level was a key indicator of the harm posed by substances mm. and supportive effect, supported effective allocation of resources by law enforcement, health and other arms of government. I'm sorry, I can't see why... the. The presence of ice in the wastewater is an indicator of the harm posed by the substances. It just means it's in the wastewater. I'm sorry. Yeah, anyway. Quote, it also allows the progress of uh, demand supply and harm reduction strategies to be monitored. He said, it only means to me that 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 it's there. Anyway. In the wastewater analysis, the latest wastewater analysis, Sydney retained its position as the cocaine capital of the country, consuming significantly more doses than residents in other cities. Of the drugs measured by doses, alcohol and nicotine remain the most consumed drugs, while methamphetamine is the most consumed illicit drugs. I, yeah, sorry, I think their, their justification, their rationale for the analysis of this stuff is flawed. It's got to be flawed. Well, I guess they've got to come out and say something it, to justify the millions of dollars being pre- spent. Absolutely. And that's the fundamental report. I remember way back, way, way, way back, 40 years ago, when they started analysing, trying to analyse how much in the way of illicit drugs there was in the Australian population or in the community. And somebody uh, actually at the ANU came up with the idea of uh, monitoring wastewater. And uh, it was an interesting concept because uh, he said that there was a a really high rate of uh, heroin use at that time in the population. And in fact, this was like 30, 40 years ago, Geoffrey, that wastewater analysis started in the ANU and now it's become it's expanded. It's expanded big time. Because you can't find out how much in the way of illicit drugs by intervention, interdiction. You can't assume how much is in the community by the fact that they've copped a certain amount. They've got a bit the cops have picked up some, have interdicted some. Because you don't know that doesn't mean how much don't know what proportion then has got actually got through to yeah, the community. That's right. The wastewater water analysis again indicates the presence of a certain amount of illicit drugs in the population or in the consumption popu- consuming population, not necessarily how many people, but just how much is in the wastewater. It's a very broad brush a, statistic. A, yeah, yeah so it's really it, they're drawing a really long bow with yeah. the use of the. What they're saying basically is it's there, um, and if you listen to what we say, which is well, if it's there, doesn't it mean it's getting through no matter what you do? Um, isn't it about time we started talking about the laws relating to them, and that interdiction is not such a terrific range, and adding more money or wasting more money on interdiction when harm reduction seems to have a much better rate of results. We're keeping people alive, keeping them. Uh, in touch with the community. We have peer educators who are keeping people safe and healthier. Those people who have things like hepatitis C, which is more often than not a problem with unsafe injecting practices, uh, sharing injecting equipment, and we're intervening at that level through the peer education programs and saying, okay, let's cure people and we can cure Mm. people of hepatitis C. And yet despite all that... Yeah, despite the interdiction, despite the jailing, despite the 
stigmatising of various people in the population. You know, we're not winning the war on drugs because drugs don't fight. No. You know? They're just sitting there minding their own business. They don't do anything. They are not sentient beings. The people who use drugs are sentient beings. But if you pre- prohibit certain drugs, they you, you become... You just alienate people who think, who breathe and, believe it or not, who vote. And they also become a way to make enormous amounts of money, which Indeed, has all sorts of... Indeed, huge amounts of money. And then what do you promote? The exchange of weapons for drugs because, really, they are on parity. Yeah, look, after the next song, we've got a, a really good piece about how the US has fueled a global drug war and why it must end. But, and um, I think we might do that one too, hey? Yeah, this is The Slits and uh, Instant Hit, The Slits. All right, that was The Slits and Instant Hit from their album Cut. Okay, it's about 20 minutes after 11. You're listening to News on the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion in the uh, 2XX studio, 98.3 FM, and we're off to a very interesting international story, Maris. Indeed. This is uh, how the United States fueled a global drug war and why it must end. This is by Anne Fordham uh, from the Open Society Foundation.org from January the 29th, June the 29th, sorry. Um, okay, June 2021 marks 50 years since Richard Nixon declared drug abuse, in inverted commas, the United States, inverted commas again, public enemy number one. It's a grim anniversary that resonates not only in the United States but all over the world, and that's because he spread it all over the world. The global drug war is an unmitigated human rights disaster, well documented documented in painstaking detail. As US domestic uh, drug policy reform gains momentum, it's time the United States makes a concerted effort to de-escalate the failed, harmful and disastrous global war on drugs. There is reason for hope. After a century as the self-appointed leader of punitive drug enforcement and billions wasted on the effort, US representatives struck a decidedly different tone on the global stage at the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs. Regina LaBelle, Acting Director of National Drug Control Policy, or NDCP, gave the United States national statement in April, noting that, inverted commas, we can't confront today's challenges with yesterday's methods. We have to modernise and make sure our approaches are responsive to current trends. She went on to highlight that the uh, Biden-Harris administration's statement of drug policy priorities for year one and emphasised the administration's focus on ensuring racial equity and promoting harm reduction efforts. Good to hear harm reduction. It is good to hear that. The Biden-Harris administration intends to make a bold shift away from the drug war at home especially in the face of an unprecedented unprecedented overdose crisis that has seen more than 70,000 Americans die from drug overdose in 2019 alone. Their commitment to scaling up harm reduction and evidence-based drug treatment, listen to that, Mr Morrison, and to ensuring racial equity is crucial and long overdue. It will require a huge and sustained effort to undo decades of harm, especially to communities of colour. However, when it comes to US foreign policy, these progressive approaches need to translate into something more than pleasing rhetoric. Yeah, that's a fair point too, isn't it? It is a fair point. Having spent, you know, 50 years with uh, propaganda to actually... Just say something nice or something palatable to people of colour and people in the community is not enough. They've got to do something about it. Yeah, got to do something. That's all it means. Well, look, the tide is sort of um, gathering momentum in the US in terms of... It is. It's turning everywhere. States that are legalising, just straight out legalising marijuana and also medical marijuana. Absolutely. And the money they're getting in taxation to each of the states is really enormous. It's a really... It's a valuable exercise. They are finding the economics might be the the factor might that be, well, we've been told for many years. It's argued the economic p- 
point and maybe you'll get somewhere. Yeah. Okay, the next uh, heading is a half century of escalating a global war on drugs. Former President Richard Nixon served to escalate and embed draconian, repressive and militarised drug control globally. In 1973, he established the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA, to unite all law enforcement agencies for, quote, an all-out global war on the drug menace. Da, 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 da. Yeah, it all sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In doing so, Nixon was simply recycling a highly successful, tried and tested strategy trot out the narrative that drugs are evil and villainous in order to demonise and punish certain groups such as... That's what they did with the communists, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Well, look, it's come out, you know, post-Nixon's death that it was just a deliberate strategy um, to link heroin to the African-American community and and pot to the young. Kill the uh, African-Americans. Yeah, Yeah. it was really cynical People of colour in particular, Yep. Uh, to punish and demonise certain groups such as racial and ethnic minorities and to legitimise questionable policies, including invasive military action overseas. Like That's often Vietnam. overlooked. Yeah, don't look over there. Look over here. Yep. This playbook was written long before Richard Nixon. Colonial powers used it to control and sanction Indigenous populations in conquered lands and deny their ancestral practices, only to tolerate such customs if they could profit from them. But the United States promoted and employed this strategy so effectively that its legacy has endured to this day, manifesting itself in disproportionate policing and mass incarceration, populist strongman rhetoric that quashes political dissidents and inflated law enforcement, prisons and military budgets at the expense of investment in health and harm reduction. Mm. Ameliorating discriminatory drug policy at home and abroad will require acknowledging the deeply racist sentiment that is enshrined in the 1961 single convention on narcotic drugs, the foundational treaty of the international drug control regime. And we speak of that and the two sister conventions all the time as the legal architecture. We mention it regularly, yep. With significant United States influence, the convention starkly illustrates the racist impetus by essentially condemning ancestral and traditional uses of the coca leaf, opium and cannabis into extinction by mandating signatories to abolish such practices. This fundamental tension between Indigenous rights and the 1961 Convention remains completely unaddressed today. Concerning harm reduction, successive United States governments have not only failed their own citizens, but have aggressively exported an anti-harm reduction agenda. This has been through both policy formulation at the United Nations, as well as via the ban on the use of federal funds for needle and syringe programs, which put limitations on United States funding for the global HIV response. This deep historical resistance to harm reduction is why LaBelle's intervention at the convention this year signals a profoundly different approach from the United States. Indeed. The next uh, heading is a, a responsibility to uplift reform. Within the United States, the momentum for drug policy reform continues to accelerate. At least one in three people in the US live in states where the recreational use of cannabis is legal. Several bills have been submitted to Congress to legalise cannabis and to decriminalise all drugs at the federal level. The focus on ensuring social justice, racial racial equity, resisting corporate capture and reparations for communities harmed by the war on drugs is a more recent and very welcome phenomenon. In addition, harm reduction now features among the top drug policy priorities of the new administration, with a new $30 million fund, that's American, dedicated to scale-up services. The winds of change are blowing in the United States. But it would be a travesty for the US to promote progressive reforms at home while imposing repressive and inhumane measures elsewhere. As the arch-enforcer of the world on war on drugs, the US now has the moral and political responsibility to proactively promote drug policies that are grounded in health and social justice, and above all, in human rights. This would mean moving away from providing international funding and political cover for the harsh enforcement of disproportionate drug laws, the militarisation of drug control, aerial spraying and forced eradication, discriminatory policing practices, forced treatment programs, drug courts, 
and mass incarceration. But it also means promoting positive reforms, discussing reparations for communities that have suffered the brunt of repressive drug control to the international level, fully recognising the ancestral rights of Indigenous communities worldwide and endorsing and funding life-saving harm reduction services both at home and abroad. These are not unrealistic fantasies, but real and concrete policies that are already being adopted in some US states, often with overwhelming popular supports. On June 26, 2021, thousands of activists around the world mobilised for for the Ninth Support Don't Punish Global Day of Action and rejected the traditionally self-congratulatory message of the UN's World Drug Day. They united with one clear, strong and urgent message. It's time to end the war on drugs. Yeah, yeah. 50 years after Nixon's administration strengthened heavy-handed international prohibition through UN drug treaties with devastating consequences, the current US presidential administration has an opportunity to begin to right the wrongs of history and start a real conversation on dismantling the global prohibition regime. And I can't help feeling that our government, our federal government, could take notice of just such policy. And I wonder to what extent the intervention in the... um, uh, the summit in England or south of England, beg your pardon, why Boris Johnson was actually there bet- sitting between Biden and Scott Morrison, I suspect, because uh, Scott Morrison was really quite a fan of Donald Trump and anybody that was a fan of double tr- Donald Trump, I don't think Biden would have much truck with. I think probably it was a good intervention in between mm. ScoMo and uh, Biden. But that's quite an interesting perspective uh, from Anne Fordham. It I... certainly is, and it's really good to hear. And I think that really to go on from that, Jeffrey, if we could, it's a pretty important one. The uh, UN highlights the role of drug war in racist policy, police policing, I beg your pardon. Did you want to... Do you want to kick that off? Yeah, or? I'll do that. Okay. On the 28th of June, the office of... This is uh, from... Sorry... This is from Talking Drugs, which is a, uh, a website, yeah, yep. um, from HTPS, well, yeah, talkingdrugs.org.un, drug war, racist, racist policing. Anyway, on the 28th of June, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights released its report, Agenda Towards Transformative Change for Racial Justice and Equality which highlights the pervasiveness of discrimination faced by Africans and people of African descent around the world. It points to the fact that, quote, systemic racism and enduring harmful and degrading associations of blackness with criminal criminality and delinquency also shape interactions of people with African descent with law enforcement officials and the criminal justice system, end quote. The report speaks to how drug control props up racist systems and explicitly calls for states to remove laws and practices that act as incentives to perpetuate racial discrimination in law enforcement and the criminal justice system, including by reforming drug policies, laws and practices with discriminatory outcomes in line with international human rights standards. The report includes two critical takeaways for people working in drug policy, harm reduction and related human rights fields. Firstly, the report and its accompanying conference room paper amplify civil society and academic data which demonstrate disproportionately ad- disproportionately sorry, adverse outcomes for people of African descent in contact with law enforcement compared to other racial and ethnic groups, including disproportionate stops, arrests and incarceration for drug-related offences. I think this probably speaks as much for um, Australian Indigenous population as well. No no doubt. As it does for the American ones, yeah. Absolutely. The conference room paper categorically concludes that, quote, people of African descent are disproportionately affected by excessively punitive 
drug policies and are more likely to be apprehended, searched, arrested, convicted and sentenced to death for drug-related crimes. Release research on disproportionate drug-related stop-and-search practices for people of colour. Okay, secondly, the report concludes there are three key contexts which, un- contexts which underlie the vast majority of police-related deaths. The policing of minor offences, traffic stops and stop-and-search, the intervention of law enforcement officials as first responders in mental health crises, and special op- police operations, many of which are actions related to the war on drugs. In the context of special police operations related to the war on drugs, the conference room paper highlights the killing of Brianna Taylor, Taylor in the US, which was the result of a drug raid, and the killing of João Pedro Matos Pinto, a 14-year-old Afro-Brazilian boy, during a joint anti-narcotics operation. Tragically, such cases are not rare. From the police officer who shot Philando Castile, suggesting the smell of cannabis made him fear for his life. Which well, that's is the one just, you mentioned. That was what I mentioned before. It's just ludicrous. He was looking for a reason why he shot someone. Yeah, <laughs> made him fear for his life because he smelt cannabis. Absolutely. Crazy. To the tens of deaths connected to drugs and alcohol uh, documented in the Guardian's database on Indigenous deaths in custody in Australia, the war on drugs continues to be used as justification for racist police violence. Oh, we did say that it related to Australia as much as anywhere else, didn't it? And so they say in the United Nations report. Indeed. I think I think this would apply globally, wouldn't yep. it? Yeah. Just this month, the police killed a Romani man named Stanislav by kneeling on his neck in Chechia. Wow. On the official report, the police, who were initially called following reports of an altercation and damage to cars, emphasised his use of amphetamines above the fatal restraints that they used. Had it not been for bystanders filming the incident, the public would likely be totally unaware of what actually happened. Absolutely. A bit like George Floyd. Yeah, indeed. Urgent and persistent advocacy against racism is required from all stakeholders at all levels, including and especially by drug policy and harm reduction advocates, given the outsized role of the global war on drugs in driving racist policing and propping up racist structures of power. Data collection, especially those coming from community and civil society, remains a critical step in our work to confront racist legacies and end racist drug law enforcement. We must hold governments to account at every level to ensure accountability and redress in line with the report's proposal for global transformative agenda for racial justice and equality. It is time to take action. It is time to take action. I think that's a really appropriate article to have done, given it's NADOC work, Geoffrey. Yeah. Really, I'm glad you brought that one in. Will we go to a song? Let's go to a song. This is uh, The Sunny Boys and Alone With You. I don't think we've played that for a while. No, it's a good song. we haven't. All right, that was The Sunny Boys and Alone With You. It's coming up about uh, 19 minutes to midday, listening to news from the drug war front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy on 2XX 98.3. And we've got a piece that sort of examines the drug war through the perspective of the uh, pansexual or... The pansexual community, LGBTQ+, plus, it's called, but I actually find that pansexual is really a much better... Uh, I really only heard it on TV the other day when... I like it. When I was watching... Um, uh, it's a one-to-one interview, and it just sounds like a terrific term. Um, instead of having to go through the inevitable alphabet soup of uh, of uh, sexuality, pansexual just seems... This is really important. It's how the drug war is a tool to criminalise LGBTQ plus people. Uh, and it's interesting that this comes out. It's by Richard Burns from filtermag.org. The reason it's interesting is because many years ago when the HIV war, uh, uh, when AIDS came into the community... Um, men who had sex with other men, injecting drug users and uh, sex workers were targeted as those people who needed to um, get together and to stop the the pervasiveness of HIV in the community. And as such, IDUs were asked to collaborate with uh, men who had sex with other men um, and sex workers were sort of a by-the-by, I guess, uh, in order to support the legal uh, presence, if you like, of um, gay men in the community, but also their influence so that they could come out and stand up and be counted. Um, they really collaborated with us or we collaborated with them 
to make sure that for the majority of people who were HIV positive, which were men who had sex with other men, that they were included in um, funding, okay? AIDS councils were included mm. in the funding in quite substantial quantities and IDUs were sort of second on the list. But it's in, now LGBTQ plus people are saying that they are being targeted um, as police... Uh, by the police as drug users and it's interesting that they're now coming up and saying well yeah we do have them in our community anyway when we think of the criminalization of the lgbtq plus community and i might just say pansexual from now on if that doesn't offend anybody our minds likely veer to the stonewall riots of 1969 but to see that as the whole picture is to erase the struggles that have continued to plague our community over the last half century. Across the country, pansexual people have faced and still face discrimination and criminalisation for our sexual orientation, taking on many forms, with one of the most common being drug arrests. As we have seen with other minority groups, as laws were created to protect pansexual from people from overt discrimination and engaging in sexual acts with someone of the same gender was no longer a crime, law enforcement found new ways, such as drug possession, to replicate age-old practices of bias, abuse and profiling. Law enforcement didn't even have to change locations in most cases. The same places, such as gay bars, that were already under surveillance became easy targets for drug arrests. Because of early childhood trauma, many times including rejection from their families of origin and even their homes, experience of aggression and violence and other stress associated with being part of a marginalised group, LGBTQ plus people were more, are more likely to experience mental health issues, substance use issues and homelessness. It's only taken them 40 years to come to grips with this, Jeff. LGBTQ people are often denied the care and support they need to handle these challenges. These factors, combined with widespread employment discrimination, mean that in many cases pansexually oriented people, especially, especially trans women of colour, need to participate in survival economies just to meet the most basic needs that others take for granted. Specifically, with an estimated 20 to 30 percent of pansexual people using drugs to cope with these experiences and hardships, compared with 9 percent of the general public with substance use issues, we are disproportionately impacted by harmful drug policies. So, it comes as no surprise that members of our community, especially people of colour and low income, find themselves under heightened police surveillance, resulting in disproportionate criminalisation. Between 2013 and 2018, 25 percent of pansexual people and people living with HIV surveyed reported at least one type of police misconduct or harassment, such as verbal assault, being accused of an offence that it did not commit sexual harassment or physical assault. According to federal data, gay, lesbian and bisexual adults are three times as likely to be incarcerated as the general population. In fact, 40% of women incarcerated are lesbian or bisexual. I didn't know that. And according to the most recent US transgender survey, one in 10 black transgender women women reported being incarcerated in the previous year and 47% of black transgender women had been incarcerated at some point in their lives compared to less than 1% of the general population. On top of that, research shows pansexual people are disproportionately represented, represented serve longer sentences and are mistreated and sexually victimised in US jails and prisons, which only adds to the likelihood they will have a harder time reintegrating back into society. Indeed. And because of the rejection many face from their peers and even their homes, members of our community are also much more likely to get caught up with the system at an early age, whether through the child welfare or juvenile justice courts, staining their record and presenting obstacles before they even get a fair shake at life. For those removed from their homes through child welfare system, lesbian, gay, bisexual and queer youth were more than twice as likely as straight youth to have been physically abused and gender non-conforming or transgender youth were more than four times as likely to be physically abused than conforming youth. Although gay and transgender youth only account for about 4-6% to of the youth population, they make up about 15% of those currently in the juvenile justice system. 
All in all, over 300,000 LGBTQ youth are arrested or detained each year, 60% of whom are black or Hispanic. Wow. We won't be free from oppression without intentionally acknowledging and fighting back against the drug war as an issue of LGBTQ plus rights. And I think that's really important. It's only taken 40 years for them to come to grips with it because I know that most people with HIV who were gay men in the very first instance Didn't want to go would not come out close, yeah. as injecting drug yeah, users, would rather come out as gay men because the gay community were not supportive of them. Yeah, not 40 accepting. years later, yeah. they're finally saying, okay, we're being targeted. Yeah. I'm glad to see they've come to grips with it. So, yes, 51 years this article goes on after the Stonewall riots. The fight is not over. Pansexually oriented people may not be criminalised solely because of their sexual identity, but are criminalised nonetheless, largely under harmful cloud of the drug war. We won't be free from oppression without intentionally acknowledging and fighting back against the drug war as an issue of LGBTQ plus rights. In order to do that, first and foremost, we must end the practices of harassment, profiling and abuse by law enforcement. We can start with policy makers providing funding to research the disproportionate arrest and incarceration of pansexually oriented individuals since so little has been done to further understand it. It's also essential that we create safe and supportive environments for pansexually oriented people. That means ensuring people working in law, working in law enforcement, education, mental health services, treatment facilities, prisons, jails and detention centres, re-entry services and child welfare are fully trained in cultural competency and trauma-informed care. And I wouldn't mind saying that no matter what your yeah. sexual orientation, they've really got to get more in. These so-called support services, which aren't supportive at all, do need to be trained in cultural competency and mm. trauma information, really. I agree. And to ensure that pansexually-oriented people, especially youth, get the resources and support to have a fighting chance... We must address issues like youth homelessness and provide mental health and substance use treatment, harm reduction and other health services. Yeah, okay, harm reduction and other health services, I would underline. For pansexually oriented people like other communities, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And that's certainly true when it comes to criminalisation. We must keep in mind the unique challenges this population faces and the disproportionate harm the drug war has inflicted. And because of that, we must create a holistic and united approach that addresses the many cultural, economic, societal and public health factors at play. Boom, boom. Well, that is... Uh, Not news to us, Geoffrey, no. but nonetheless obviously news to uh, LGBTQ plus people. Well, that was Richard Burns from filtermag.org. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm glad they've come to grips with it. It's taken a long time. Well, a long time coming, but it's a call to arms, people. And I would just say there is really not a community in the population that isn't touched mm. by this so in some way and disproportionately. Yeah, yeah. Indigenous the time is now people, for change. Uh, pansexually oriented people. You know, it doesn't matter. We people with great trauma, people with chronic pain, all touched and you know stigmatized. By this bloody drug war, which is an absolute pain, and well, it keeps us going week by week, listeners. So, <laughs> and look, the response is the allocation of resources is pathetic. With you know, two percent going totally, to harm reduction, it's just ridiculous. It's not enough. And the other thing is, you know, the treatment is part of the solution. Okay, and I maybe. The pansexually oriented community needs to come to grips with the fact that, yeah, treatment is important and acknowledgement as treatment has a role to play. But first of all, you've got to cop the fact that drug use happens. And if you don't start from that, as that position as a peer, you create, as you do with, you know, different sexualities, you create a power imbalance. Mm. There is no peer orientation unless you start with drug use is a fact. Yeah. I agree. 
And of course you do, darling. <laughs> You're on the radio with me. <laughs> and peer education is shown to be effective. It, I mean, it's the most effective way of getting information out there and providing support. And unless you see yourself as a peer, it doesn't matter whether you inject or not. But some you're on the same level as other people. There is none of this bloody patronising and this head patting and the you'll be all right, darling, if you just give up drugs. It's rubbish. Yeah, and there needs to be a range of options for people. And That's right. They need to be ready for when people say that they need help. That's Try the other thing. Support people until they're ready to give up. Yeah. If they ever are. That's right. Just love them because they're there and because you do love them. Their drug use is only one part of who they are. And look, given right. the stresses of COVID and the pandemic, I mean, we, we saw alcohol rates go up. When Absolutely. The pandemic, yeah. And no. domestic violence rates. People are stressed. People are worried. The future is you know, not looking as rosy as it was before the pandemic. And there is never going to be a normal. No. Like before the pandemic ever happened. Jeff, no, it's actually not going to go back to that. Posted a really good quote that somebody put on Facebook to that effect that there was never was a normal. No, you know. no. Yeah. When was normal? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree, I agree, yeah. So, um, well, that takes us pretty much to the end of another episode of News from the Drug War Front. I don't do for- indeed. Don't forget the blood testing tomorrow for if you want to get... Yeah, yeah, the Reach, Teach, Treat, um, 62533643 or uh, the other one is 62306344. That's hepatitis ACT and blood testings on tomorrow. One till five. From hepatitis C. Um, and that will be at Hepatitis ACT. At their in, office in um, David uh, in Street in O'Connor. O'Connor. Yeah. Um, and Chris will be there to take your blood and you get paid to have your blood taken. Um, and don't forget that the uh, Muragadi, um workshop is on the 29th of July. Mm-hmm. Get 62533643 if you're an Indigenous person would like to go to this workshop. Uh, get in touch with Monica or Eva Lee at Karma um, and have Happy NADOC Week. Uh, we celebrate yes, it with you. indeed. And, uh, yeah, we look to support you as well as everybody else. I mean, you know more. I'd rather you supported me. I'm old. I'm discriminated against and have been for many years. Nonetheless, probably not as long as you guys have. But we will see you next week. Yeah, we'll um, be back again. Look after yourselves. Same time. Take care. Um, Look after each other and look after yourselves. And uh, you can get out of bed now and have another coffee, I guess. I wonder if it's gone up half a degree in the time. Oh, I hope it's a bit warmer (laughs) than it was when we came in. Jeffrey, I was so cold. Okay. Leave you the theme song, Golden Brown by the Stranglers. Bye. Bye. Hello, I'm Brady Evans.